No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome everyone to the Life Hub podcast. Today we have a returning guest. Yes, we had him virtually before, but now we have Sheikh Yusuf Susi with us in person for the occasion of United Islam Awareness Week. We were fortunate enough to have a conversation in real time in a beautiful setting with Sheikh Yusuf Susi and. Uh, he's brought with him minus 35 degrees weather from Minneapolis, if I understand that correctly. I think I found it. I don't think I brought it. I think I found it here. Yeah, he, <laughs> he found it. Okay, so he found the barakah here. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Sheikh. Welcome. Wa, wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakumullah khair for having me. Allahi barakfikum. Welcome. What's your first impressions of Canada so far? Wallahi, this might sound very odd. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Allahumma yassalli amri wa sharahli sadri wa hlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli. Allahumma ameen. For the first time ever in my life, I never thought I'd come to this realization, but I must honestly say I have a newfound appreciation for Minnesota's weather. Mm. Um, coming to here, the people in Minnesota are constantly complaining about how cold it is, the, the weather and the snow, the slush, the wind factor, the windshield. Mm. But coming here and hopping on Google and seeing that it's minus 20, but it feels like it's minus 35. Yeah. I'm I'm somewhat excited to go back to Minnesota. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a vacation when you go to any of those areas where you don't get that minus 40. Like right now, it's springtime for us. So I think it's minus 10 right now. And uh, just yesterday, it was minus 30-ish, right, with wind chill. So for us, this is like springtime. This is like a vacation, you know. And you'll see people walk around in shorts in this weather, like the local Canadians here. But, uh, yeah, you do get an appreciation for where you're from sometimes. <laughs> this, I mean, this has come after many decades. I, I, again, yeah. I never thought that I would say this, but yeah. I'm really, I plan on going back to Minnesota with a very different attitude. Yeah, yeah. Very positive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like how uh, Rasulullah says, you know, look at the person below you. <laughs> yeah. So look yes. at the person 30 below you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So uh, this is your first time in Canada? First time in Canada, yes. Okay. Yes. First time interacting with the Muslim community in Canada. In yes. Canada, yes. How have you found their reception, interacting with them so far? Wallahi, very good. Allahumma lak alhamd. Very uh, hospitable, very gracious, mm. very generous, very kind, very mm. all of the above. Mm. Allahumma barik. Yes. Our communities. I want to get right into it. Just go full force right mm -hmm. into it. Our communities uh, in our state right now, as uh, as this generation of this ummah, do you think we're living in a time of fitna? I think it's obvious, um, I, and I think you deep inside know the answer. I think mm. any Muslim who is following what's going on in the Muslim world is just somewhat casually observing what's taking place mm. would believe that we're living in the end times and mm. definitely in the time of fitan. From the very average person to the very top-notch scholar, I think far in between all would realize and acknowledge that we're living in the times of fitna without a doubt. Mm. Yes. When I think of living in a time of fitna, I feel the best analogy to describe it is the building is on fire. You know, so you have chaos, you have turmoil, and any emergent situation like that, any chaotic situation like that, we look to people to show us the way out. Okay. And in our situation as an ummah, we are blessed with scholars and du'at, 
leaders, aimma, we have these people that we look to, especially during times of fitna. Regular times, yes, but even more so in times of fitna. And we need these people to show us the way out, right? The jama'ah needs these people. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that these people, the scholars, the du'at, our leaders, are fulfilling their responsibility to help us through this these times of fitna? Wallahi, akhi, that is such a loaded question and, and I don't think one response is going to do justice to it mm. but again following what has taken place in the Muslim world and following Muslim discourse and Muslim da'wah for the past decade or two give or take I would say we veered off track mm. okay and as you said there's the responsibility of those to lead those who need to be led and unfortunately we've we've dropped the ball and I don't mean to sound pessimistic or negative, but we're not headed in the right uh, direction, mm. right? Uh, with with the average Muslim, that's already confused, mm. okay? You have voices from many innumerable, countless directions. And so I feel the easy way out is just to remain silent on a lot of these topics. And we, we, we're constantly seeing more and more of the maslahayek, wisdom card being thrown around mm. i mean this these i believe these two words combined are perhaps the most abused words in muslim mm. discourse mm. now in, in terms of the da'i the shaykh the imam the instructor mm. the, the the scholar right mm. well no wisdom dictates abc wisdom entails that we do xyz mm. or you know the other way as well perhaps it's better that we just remain silent on this subject and i find this to be very, it's not, it's not a realistic approach, mm. and I think it does more damage than it does uh, good. So do you think it, there is an inadequate assessment of the fitan or an unwillingness to confront it? I think there's, I think unwillingness, I would say it's the latter. Mm. I think it's the unwillingness to confront it because... See, like any other, like any other position, right? A certain position might require that you have knowledge in a certain field. Another position might require that you don't have knowledge, that you're mm. just a strong person, mm. right? We're just looking for someone who is physically built, physically strong for this position. We don't need you to be knowledgeable. We don't need you to be a prolific speaker. All we're looking for to fit this position is we're looking for someone who's audacious, bold, courageous, and physically fit. Mm. to handle this situation. We don't need you to write books. We don't need you to audit. We don't need you to mm. do none of that, right? And so, but I would argue the one missing ingredient in Islamic discourse today at the very top is courage, mm. okay? Which is not to say the other ingredients are not important, but today, unlike any time before in history, we need courageous Muslim speakers, courageous imams, courageous scholars, courageous sheikhs. We, especially in today's society, we need people who are going to be bold and to vocalize and to verbalize in front of the whole world what our positions are, our values, our principles. Mm. If you have all the knowledge in the world, Mm. you've memorized Al-Bukhari, you've memorized the Quran, you've memorized Muslim, you've memorized Ibn Majah, you've memorized all the books. But if you can't verbalize and you're not able or willing out of fear that exists within you, if you're not able to verbalize that out in the public, what good is that knowledge? Mm. And I think this is what we're in front of today. 
right? There's always the, the, the there has to be in, in unison where you have the knowledge and you have to be bold and courageous. But I find today we can use courage perhaps even more than knowledge, mm. right? Because of, again, the existing voices that are out there. Yeah. I feel that uh, I agree with you that there is an unwillingness, but I think that uh, there's also a lack of uh, getting out of their bubble. Some people are living in bubbles. For example, I've talked to certain imams and sheikhs, how they counsel uh, marriages and what their assessment is of why there's so many problems with marriages. And what usually happens is the people who seek counseling from the imams and the sheikh, or the shiuch, they come from like back home countries, right? So, um, and usually their problems are T like there is a typical issue with that. Maybe like the husband might be a little bit too harsh or whatever. They, there's like that stereotypical type of thing. Sure. And then they project that as if like that's happening with everything. Whereas I'm born and raised here and the emerging issues in our generation are very different. You know what I mean? And so when they get on the member and they talk about how a husband and wife should be like with each other and stuff like that, this is a society that does not need to do more socialization or casual stuff like that generation that comes they had a mentality to hustle and so maybe the husband doesn't think oh i gotta have a date night with my wife whereas this generation that's brought up all they want to do is have date nights all they want to do like they want to live that kind of that spoiled whatever the, you know the modern lifestyle is you know they don't want to have that many children they want to go on vacations all the time etc cetera, etc cetera. and so the problems that emerge from them are different and they don't know how to give advice they don't know how to talk to these people and they don't understand like the fit and like they really don't have an idea of uh the the young generation that's coming up and how they view Islam, how everything that they find palatable or acceptable uh, in Islam has to be filtered through a liberalistic lens. You know what I mean? So they don't understand the extent uh, of that. I feel with some of our, I'm not talking about the online Dawah scene because they obviously, they're coming from a younger generation, but I'm talking more about like the imams and scholars especially coming from uh, many of our back home countries. What are your thoughts in regards to that? I, I, I agree. I, I agree. And to even take that further, I find there's, there's perhaps even a, as you said earlier, there mm. is without a doubt a disconnect. Mm. Right. And that's why I believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best that the best one to do the job is someone who's very familiar mm. and aware of the culture. Okay. Mm. One of the one of the things that I find is necessary and very very important is if you're engaged in dawa here in America, you have to have somewhat of an online presence. Mm. Not because you want to waste your time, not because you want to scroll through and you have nothing better to do with your time, but it's because that's where trends are being developed. That's where minds, ideas are being shaped. That's where everything is being shared, is online. So again, it's not that you want to waste your time online and go around from one platform to the other, but I think there has to be a minimum to see what exactly is happening. Um, and so going back to that, as you said earlier, you have the older generation, they came, they've done many sacrifices, 
right? Uh, the father is out working from sunrise to sunset. The mother is at home taking care of the children. And you again, you have the newer generation. They want to do things somewhat different, mm. right? Um, and, and I think it is our job as imams, mashayikh, uh, to try to curb that, mm. right? And to try to, to guide them to the best of our ability. To give you a, like a real-life practical example that I've witnessed, you'll have somebody talk about, oh, the... Uh, the husband and wife, uh, as the lens that they have here, everything's 50-50, sharing the work and focusing on all the um, mm. the help that Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam now, did now in the house. Now we're talking. Okay, so they'll focus on that. And I swear to you, they say this in the khutbah, they say these in lectures, and people are cheering, yeah, 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 you know what I mean? Especially the women in the audience. But then I've been to their households. It's a very traditional household. You know what I mean? Like, so they're purporting stuff that they don't even have in their own house. You know what I mean? So they have a more tra traditional type of setup or, uh, you know, the, the wife is looking after, uh, you know, uh, preparing the food, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But then they come up on the member and they, 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 they say these things, you know what I mean? And I, I feel that uh, they're almost catering to that audience to a certain degree, but they're not even really living that themselves. They don't, I don't think they really believe that, that that works or that's a reality. Well, I feel like you're going to drag us into something really, really touchy here. Um, but I think it has, I don't think, I believe it has to be said. And mm -hmm. I believe the time is yesterday, not even today. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've, I've thought I've, I've had the same sentiments for years. Mm. And that is that I'm always reminded when I see when I ascend the mimbar or the pulpit and I'm getting ready to deliver a lecture, a talk mm. or a speech. I'm always keeping in my mind if I were on the opposite side, mm. I'd want the man who's in front of me to speak the utter truth. Mm. Even if it means hurting my feelings, I want to hear the undiluted, raw, organic truth from this person who's speaking to me, even if he or she might hurt my feelings. Okay, What I mean by that is, this reminds me of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where he says, لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى يحب لأخيه ما يحبه لنفسه. None of you, and all of us, I think, are very familiar with this hadith because it's repeated often. None of you truly have full iman until you love for your fellow brother, sister uh, in Islam what you love for yourself. Okay, And this is, again, where it gets a little bit tricky. We don't want to go down this hole, but we have to. Okay, So... When an imam comes up, as you said earlier, they're living a traditional life. He is out doing what he has to do as the husband, as the leader, as the provider. He's out doing his part. He's for fulfilling his role. His wife is at home taking care of the children. And we don't have to mention imam fulan, sheikh fulan, or scholar alan. Okay, we there is no need for us to mention names, okay? Mm. The wife is at home. She's assuming the traditional role. The kids are at home. And the way they're living, as you said earlier, it's very traditional. The wife is the one who's doing the cooking. The wife who's taking care of the children. She's taking the children to school or she's homeschooling and the father's out and about doing, fulfilling his, his roles. What I find very, very misleading is that for this same man now to become a different man when he assumes his position in front of a wide audience. So now he changes, he becomes, as you mentioned earlier, he becomes now someone different. 
Now it becomes the 50-50 language. Well, Afwan, you're not applying the 50-50 in your own life. And you know it doesn't work. And you know this 50-50 concept or this aspiration of the 50-50 agenda. You know it leads to destruction. And you know that it's not going to benefit the family. He knows that deep inside. But again, it's music to the ears. It's tunes to the ears because, again... It's the society we're living in. These expectations have to be met. Everything has to be 50-50. And there's nothing more destructive than applying a 50-50 model to any given marriage. So again, I'm, I, I don't want to sound nasty, but I'm going to have to say this. So for example, his daughter is not on Instagram trying to be the funny Muslim. Mm. His daughter is not the one on TikTok doing funny videos. His daughter is not the one posing with a duck face, with her face plastered with makeup, giggling around with guys and making these flirtatious videos. His daughter is not doing none of the above. Now, however, when he comes and gives this huge mega speech, is he willing to address the above? Mm. Is he willing to say that this is haram, this is not permissible, fear Allah concerning your daughters, your daughters have to consider what they're doing online, and so on and so forth, right? No. But his daughter is not the one doing that. But he And he knows he will not allow his daughter to do any of the above because he's raised his daughters better than that. And he's not expecting for the daughters he's raising to be one of these sisters who was online going around from platform to platform right doing these videos about hijab tutorial and putting on makeup in front of wandering random gaze and eyes to see because he knows he's not having it do you know why he's not having it because he knows he believes deep inside that this in itself is haram where is the hadith of none of you truly have belief or iman until you love for yourself what you love for your fellow brother in Muslim. This is just one aspect. Mm. Or the wife, the same thing when it comes to the wife. The wife is doing all of the above. Now his wife, for example, she doesn't have a profile picture. No one knows who the wife is. But then again, you see, it's common to see this all around where Muslim women will have these profile pictures. Now I know someone is going to scream and say, well, Sheikh, how come you don't just lower your gaze? Let me say something. Us men lowering from our gaze, it does not solve the world's hunger problem. When I see people constantly talking and bashing men on how we have to lower our gaze, now do I have a problem with it? No. Do you have a problem with it, doctor? Mm. Not at all, right? However, who are we men supposed to lower our gaze from? Mm. The street signs? Mm. The tall buildings? The tall trees, the airplanes, the skies, the sun, the moon. We're supposed to lower our gaze from what exactly? Mm. From women. Yeah. So it, it, you have, there's a combination, right? It, it, there are two parties involved here. But again, in a genocentric society, it is very convenient, it's popular, it's attractive, and it's expected to badger men. Mm. And to speak down to men. And to sound hard and rough and tough when it comes to speaking to men. Mm. But when it comes to the women... Suddenly, there's nothing to be said. You can hear a pin literally drop in the room. Mm. Okay. Now, I know we, we veered off, but I find this to be misleading. Mm. Okay. And it's not fair between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you see these ills taking place. Mm. You as a da'i, you are not okay with your daughters doing the above. Mm. You also should not be okay with random Muslim women doing that as well. And one last mm. thing before we move on. 
a person who doesn't have clout, a person who doesn't have a huge following base, if he says this, he might be marginalized and dismissed, right? As a misogynist, as a male chauvinist, as someone who's intimidated by women, who's someone maybe he, he was traumatized by a woman in his past. But when you, Mr. Clout, you, Mr. with the huge following base, when you say it, there's a, there's a currency there. When I say it, I'm, I might be easily dismissed. But when you say it, that sister watching you after watching me might start to think twice about doing what she's doing online. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. The sister or the brother. But when I say it, and I'm the only one saying it, oh, this guy must have a problem with women. Mm -hmm. But when you say it, another person says it, another person says it, that becomes the new norm. Mm -hmm. And this, again, it takes courage for us to, 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 to go down this route. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel that this uh, shaming with the lowering the gaze uh, mental trick that's used, it's kind of like this. Don't look at my left hand, okay? Don't look at my left hand. You know what I mean? So <laughs> you're try you're drawing attention to something, and <laughs> you know it's 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 you can't win. You know what I mean? It doesn't make. Uh, it doesn't make any cohesion between people. There's, uh, we, we, if we truly want to understand um, and have uh, cohesion and, and uh, I would say uh, peace between people, you always have to understand uh, where, where both people are coming from. You know what I mean? So men are built different, obviously, in a certain mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Women are built different in a certain way. And when you have uh, people like many of these imams for years, they were saying, the woman is obligated to do nothing at home. Man has to provide everything. Like they're making it as if, I felt they were almost overcompensating. They felt so guilty for being Muslim and having these traditional values that they have to overcompensate in front of the whole world as if they're grandstanding in front of the whole world to mm. try to say, women don't have to do anything. And then they ruined, like now they're, you're seeing they're merging like couples that are coming up, these young couples. There's so much conflict, like nobody knows what to do, what are the expectations. Right, right. There's all this chaos and many men say, what's the use of getting married? What's the point of getting married? If I have to provide everything, she's not obligated to do anything, then why should I even get married? Like it's as if you're just turning up the volume on making the like the fitna and the haram like much more easier. Yeah, you're not. And helping. then you're dialing down all the 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 pathways of doing good. You know. See, well, like, here's and I don't and again because there's so much to say, yeah. right? And and I just I I want to make sure that we don't veer off track too much. Yeah. But Ahi, there's censorship going on. Mm. There is censorship going on. Mm. Reality. Th this is a reality I think no one can deny. Mm. Okay, uh, it, it confronts us each and every day. It's in front of our very own eyes. We can't mm. act like it's not there. Mm. Okay, in the younger generation, I think they're especially the younger generation, meaning here the men. They're I would say they're sick and tired of seeing it. Like they're starting to see through the cracks. They're starting to see the games that are being played. All right. It's 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 cool. What I think is happening, what's been happening for the past two decades, we've been talking to Muslim women about their rights and we've been talking to men about their duties. Mm. And this is destructive. When you're constantly reminded of one half, you're not going to carry out your duties the right way. You're you're because this is literally wherever you go with a lot of these conferences, these national conventions, the average Muslim woman, the only thing she's hearing is her rights, 
her rights, her rights. No one is telling her that perhaps what you're doing is wrong. Perhaps you're the reason for the destruction of your marriage. Perhaps the way you're speaking to your husband is foul. It's nasty. It's disgusting. And no average sane man is going to want to put up with that. Mm. You, you see what's happening here? So it creates a huge disequilibrium in a huge imbalance. And this is what the younger generation, especially again, the men, they're tired of this. Okay. It's popular to badger men. Okay. But when it comes to women, you have to be extra, extra delicate. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think again, the, the younger generation, they're starting to wake up to this. And that's the biggest thing that I fear is that when the younger Muslim men lose trust in the very people they're supposed to trust, mm-hmm. i.e. scholars, duhat, Imams, Mashaykh, and so on and so forth. Mm. Yeah. And it's become, I say, Akhi, that it's become literally like the unforgivable sin. Mm. And I wrote about this on, on, on Facebook a while back. I said, when it comes to women's issues, right, that's become like the unforgivable sin. And you get this new clause. Oh, no, 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 no. Only women should talk about women's issues. Well, forgive me. Where do you get that from? Mm. This contingency, this shart, this condition. This is not found in the Quran or the Sunnah. Yeah. Right? I mean, Muslim men have been uh, uh, advising Muslim women. Muslim women can advise Muslim uh, men, and, and it goes back and forth, mm. depending on the context and the situation, mm. of course. But to say that, oh, no, this is a prerequisite, then I'm sorry, I have news for you. This is not of Islam. Mm. This is not of Islam at all. Yeah, that, that is an argument that's used, or it's a prevailing sentiment now amongst people that you can only advise people from your specifically assigned or recognized identity group uh it's becoming pretty extreme right like uh you can have only okay only arab uh, you know can, should not uh, advise uh black muslims and black muslims should not advise you know arab or some like there's there is this prevailing um i, I remember with um uh when a lot of the black lives matter issues started emerging i i saw actually more disconnect within the Muslim community. You saw people literally saying, oh, no no one, unless you're black, you should not be speaking on these issues of civil rights or any of those types of things, right? Sure. Then who 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 is better than the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? You know, to, 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 those words that we were guided by, by Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, who, they're much better people than us. And we never say, hey, you don't have the authority to speak because of this prerequisite that we're assigning tribal. It's asabiyah, right? No, no, that's that's exactly it. You have to be a woman to talk about women's issues. You have yeah. to be white to talk about white white people's issues. Yeah. You have to be native to talk about natives' issues. Yeah. See, and again, this is... Y- yet corporate America can celebrate and talk about all these issues, yeah. right? Well, that's what happens again when you, when you have an inferiority complex. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, um, right? this is something I've noticed again, yeah. right? And this is, I don't want to again sound pessimistic or negative, but the younger generation, I can't really pinpoint it to a specific date, but there is a time where young, young Muslims have literally woken up and said, you know what, we don't have to look up to our elders. We don't have to look up to those older than us with more experience and more knowledge. We don't have to look up to them for advice, for counsel. I think we got it all figured out. Mm. And I think this is where it got extremely nasty where they're looking at everything that is it doesn't coincide with their wokeism and they're completely dismissing it because it doesn't you know it doesn't mesh well with their with their new adopted uh, uh, beliefs mm. yeah do you feel there are people in our community uh, 
that have an ulterior agenda that are actually making the situation worse on purpose? Well, that's hard. That's hard to it's hard to say and it's hard to to concretize simply because this has to do with Amel al-Qulub, mm-hmm. right? Um, because it, uh, the, the reason I say this, sure. because then I'll refer to the hadith of Rasul where he said, verily among what I fear most for my nation is every hypocrite with a knowledgeable tongue. So, the, and then there's various hadith, like uh, uh, there's also a statement by Omar bin al-Khattab, where he says, verily what I fear most for this nation is a learned hypocrite. It was said, how has he learned a hypocrite, Omar radiallahu anhu said, he has learned with his tongue, but he's ignorant of the heart and good deeds. You know what I mean? So do we have people who are, you feel they have this ulterior agenda showing Iman on the outside, but they have a different agenda on the inside? Without a doubt. Yeah. But to to pinpoint who yeah, they but you are, can't, well, is maybe. A, that's a little difficult. Yeah. But to, no, these people will always, see, believers will always remain. Mm. Disbelievers will always remain. And of mm. course, hypocrites are not an exception. They too will always remain in the ranks of Muslims. See, hypocrites is not something of the past. It's something that's perpetual, right? It's something that keeps occurring. So no, and, and you can you can you can oftentimes gauge it by the nonsense that they spew, right? The ignorance that they deliver and the things that they speak about, right? Mm. Um yes, so no, they're they're out there, without a doubt. Yes. Mm. But I would just I would just warn Muslims to be very careful with accusing someone specifically mm. simply because you might have someone who might not really be a hypocrite, right? They might be just completely overboard ignorant when it comes to the matters of sharia. Why? Because they don't have a, a traditional upbringing, right? They uh, watched a few YouTube videos here and there. They listened to a few academics who can't read or write Arabic, but they're for whatever reason, they are pointed to as an expert of Islam, right? Not knowing how they get these titles, but let's just assume you're an expert of Islam, yet you don't know the basic Arabic, you don't know the difference between al-fa'al and al-maf'ul, but people are pointing to you as this expert of Islam. So there might be a mana' there that prevents, like they really might mean well, right? But it's just they're, 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 they're ignorant. Okay, and that might be an excuse that they have in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But no, I think we all agree that yes, hypocrites will always remain. Uh, and of course, they're, they're varying degrees, the same way that disbelievers vary in degrees, believers, they vary in degrees. At the end of the day, you're always going to have hypocrites, yes. And of course, it's our job as Muslims to warn against it or mm-hmm. to warn against these people, depending on how far they veer off from, the, from orthodoxy. Yes, mm. yes. Uh, you mentioned something about uh, many of these uh, scholars do are taking from academics and whatnot. Have you noticed a trend of uh, Muslims co-opting self-help rhetoric and literature? Uh, uh, some of the trending counseling, uh, maybe materials that are out there and co-opting it with an Islamic fa- flavor? Yes, um, I, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna say that I've gone into any of the this material and read it from front to back, but what I find, what I find scary and alarming is before people, be, younger generation of Muslims, they wanted to be, you know, mashayikh, they wanted to be imams, they wanted to be uh, Muslim scholars, they wanted to be fuqaha, they wanted to be, you know, the learned people. It seems today, almost every other day, you have a new Muslim coach 
a new Muslim, you know, mm. self-development, uh, you know, course, and a new this and a new that. And the question I think that we should all be asking ourselves is, how much are you grounded in Islamic sciences? Because it's only through the grounding of Islamic sciences that you're going to be able to filter the nonsense that the liberal agenda is shoving down our throats. Mm. But if you don't have just even the basic fundamental bedrock understanding of what Islam is and what Islam isn't, you're probably going to create a lot of damage, although you mean well, you intend well, but you're creating a lot of damage and you're creating a lot of havoc simply because you don't know that what they're telling you is normal in Islam. It's not. I'll give you an example, okay? So when I come across the word controlling husband, when I come across the word abusive husband, I do not fall off of my chair. Do you know why? Because when I look at it through the liberal lens, a controlling husband or an abusive husband could very well translate Islamically to a qawam. Does that make sense? Mm. And I think this is where we have to be extra, extra careful because in liberal society, a man doesn't have a say. He shouldn't be telling his wife what to do, how to dress, where to go, who to go with, and so on and so forth. In Islam, that's not the same. Mm. You cannot bring that epistemic language into Islam because in Islam I as the husband she my wife my women folk they are my responsibility so I have to know who she's befriending I have to know where she is who she's going out with are these good friends or not and so on because again I will be asked about her on judgment day so what I'm afraid of is you have a woman who comes in and the man is just, he's not abusive at all, Islamically speaking. It's not that he's, you know, verbally abusive. He's just telling her, for example, um, honey, no, I don't think that's appropriate. I don't want you leaving the house like that. That's not appropriate. Who are you to tell me how to dress? Ah, uh, see, this is where you got to, this is where you as a wife have a huge problem. Mm. That's, your, that's your husband's duty to make sure that you do not leave like that. Because guess what? The burden falls on him. And you, of course, but because he has that responsibility, he's the qawam. So you have sometimes men, they're simply exercising their qiwama. And again, I do not want my words to be minced or, or mistranslated or misconstrued. This is not to say that abuse is not a valid thing out there. This is not to say that there are not controlling men out there. Because when you look at comments on videos, you come across these hysterical, oh, is he saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So you always feel like doing this for a while, you always want to cover your, your, your cross your T's and you always want to cover your bases, right? This is not what I'm saying. But this is just one example that I've come across is that, yes, you might, you, you might describe him as, you know, a controlling, abusive husband. But Islamically speaking, this is simply a qawam. If mm. you went back 40, 60 years ago, this was normal for men to do across cultures, right? To want to make sure your wife is in before dark, for example. That you don't want your wife leaving work, finding herself in a parking lot, in, in an empty parking lot at one o'clock in the morning alone. Yeah, he has he has the right. He has every right. That That's not just his right. That's his duty. It's his right and duty to know all that information. Right. Mm. And again, going back, tying this back into scholars. Why is this not the norm? Why is this not at every Friday khutbah? Why is it that our dear sisters, wives and sisters are not hearing this? at the Friday khutbahs or at these national conventions, right? And so the pandering has gotten to a moment, it's, it's gotten to a point where the young Muslim men, they don't even want to go to these conventions anymore. Do you know why? Because they know what they're expecting. They, it's become so predictable where it's, you know what? I'm going to opt out. 
I don't want to be a part of this. Why? Because I know what they're going to talk about. They talk about it year after year after year. I want to give you an example for my daughter. Okay. I'm teaching my daughter, although she's eight years old, she's not at that age yet. But when I, as a father, talk to my daughter about the proper hijab and the proper how a woman should carry herself with hishma, bashfulness, and to, to be proud of her femininity and to embrace it and so on and so forth. And my wife is doing the same. I want that when she goes to the masjid at a Friday khutbah, that my message at home as a father it's being, is being reinforced by the khatib. I don't want my daughter to hear someone telling her, no one can judge you, You're, you have your own rights, and no one should tell you how to... No, I want the khatib to reinforce what I'm building at home. The same thing goes when, we, when we're talking about these national conventions. I want a public speaker to reinforce what the conditions of the hijab are, that your father loves you and he cares for you. That's why he wants you wearing the proper hijab. That's why he doesn't want you out late at night. I don't want my daughter to go to the khutbah and to literally hear everything being torn down, right? After me trying to do some building, you find that it's being torn down at the, at the, at the khutbah. This is just one, one prime example. Hmm. Yeah. With that issue of um, not just hijab, but many of our outward clothing that we wear that uh, shows us, represents us as being Muslim, do you find that a lot of our Islam is almost becoming cosplay within the uh, this emerging generation you know what i mean i think i think we're we're becoming desperate we're becoming desperate where we don't want to be full-fledged practicing muslims but we also don't want to be like the disbelievers mm. So we're trying to do the little tweak and the little ads and the little touch up here and touch up there. Hey, no, I'm, I'm still a Muslim, but I'm a cool Muslim. Mm. You know what I mean? Where, and, and this again um, goes into the, I, I, I want to drag something in if, if by your permission. Um, when we're, because we're talking about the scholars, we're talking about the imams, we're talking about the responsibility of the people of knowledge, which is a huge responsibility. What I find disheartening is that when you go to a khutbah or you go to a lecture and you find the khatib for about an hour give a, a fascinating talk about the beauties of modesty but fails to tie this lecture with everyday encounters, with everyday ills, with current ills. In other words, he doesn't make his khutbah relevant. He doesn't give real, li real life examples as to what's going on, the degeneracy that's happening, for example, online. So he'll be vague. He'll give you all of the ayat. He'll give you all of the hadith about modesty. But he won't talk about, for example, he won't dig deep and be explicit that, for example, wearing tight jeans for a Muslim woman is not allowed. Mm. And you're flirting with hell. Don't be mad at me. This is a very basic hadith. Or we're in stretches. Now, I know, I know. But, Sheikh, who are you to judge? We're, listen, I understand that we all have our journeys and we're all at different degrees and we're all at varying levels. Listen, I have no problem with that. But when you, as a khatib, you talk about these things, but you're being so vague, the mm. person who's intended to hear that thinks that you're talking about everyone else in the, in the room except them. Do you know why? Because of how vague and ambiguous and implicit you are in your speech. You're intended, you're intended to address that, let's assume you're talking to that girl right there in the first row, okay? But you're so vague, she thinks that you're speaking about everyone else in the room. 
Do you see what I mean? Mm. So this, أخي, this is a huge problem mm. that when you're so vague that no one un- really understands well, what, what are you talking about? Mm. And this is what's missing, right? And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he talks about al-bayan in the Quran, right? He says, يَا أَيُّهَا الرَّسُولُ بَلِّغْ مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكُ وَإِنْ لَمْ تَفْعَلْ فَمَا بَلَّغْتَ رِسَالَتَهُ O Messenger of Allah, convey the truth that has been given to you. Now when Allah speaks about the people of the book, He says, وَإِذْ أَخَذَ اللَّهُ مِثَاقَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ لَتُبَيِّنُنَّهُ لِلنَّاسِ وَلَا تَكْتُمُونَ And Allah, behold, when He has taken the oath from the people of the book, that you will indeed clarify it for the people. Clarify it to be clear, obvious, explicit. And you shall not conceal it from the people. So one of the things, people of knowledge, one of the things that we ought to do and we have to do, it's incumbent, it's our duty to do, is to be explicit. There are times to be vague, but being vague, right, that's an exception, not the rule. Mm. In a society, doctor, in a society filled with already confused Muslims, your you being vague is going, only going to add salt to the wound. They're confused. You're being vague. Do you think they're going to leave more confused? Sometimes by being so vague, they can misapply it. And they can reinforce maybe uh, an incorrect idea or incorrect practice, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and one of, uh, and maybe to even, one of the mafasid, one of, one of the biggest, I think, mafasid that this creates is when I speak explicitly about these matters, okay, and the others, for example, don't. Again, it goes back to, oh, this person is just extreme. Because my favorite YouTuber, Sheikh, my favorite Mufti, my favorite Imam, he never talks about this. Mm-hmm. So the perception is, oh, if he doesn't talk about it, that means it's okay. It's not an issue. And the other people who are addressing it head on, that must mean that they themselves are insecure or they're just extreme you know and of course the, the they're the, not mainstream they're pushing yeah. people away from the that's the be, that, that's the best one right i'm being mm. sort of facetious here yeah. oh you're pushing people away from the masjid brother yeah no i'm, I'm just telling you what you have to hear because yeah. guess what we're, we're talking about punishment here yeah. and that's why al-imam al-dhahabi, al-imam al-dhahabi when he talks about concealing the knowledge he says there are certain things as an imam right and he there are by the way if, if, if i'm allowed here if i got if we have time there are three uh categories or three avenues or three possibilities an imam a sheikh can explore when it comes to concealing knowledge from the people right and that is that one of the exceptions is that if your life depends on it if your life depends on it as a sheikh meaning that if you say this you're going to be killed Right, you're going to be put to death, and this is Abu Huraira radiAllahu anhu. He says, "Hafithu min Rasulillahi sallallahu alaihi wasallam wiaain. Amma ahaduhuma faqad bathathu, wa amma al-akhiru falo bathathu la qutia hadal bilum." He says, "I've memorized two items of knowledge from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. One of them, I've conveyed it. I've given it to the people. The other, if I utter a word, I would be killed. Okay." And of course, the ulama, they talked about what, what, what this item of knowledge is. Um, but for the brevity, for the sake of brevity, we're not going to get into that. Here, in another hadith, Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, conveyed to the people that whomsoever says, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, will be granted paradise. Mu'adh ibn Jabal, he says, O Messenger of Allah, shall I not convey this to the people? He says, La, لأنهم يتكلون. He says, no, do not say that because they'll rely more on the word in itself 
than counting and using their actions as a mean. In other words, we don't want people just to say, oh, I said the word, so I, I have a freeway ticket, right? We want people to, um, uh, uh, to grasp the concept of deeds and, and faith, right? Actions and faith. The, 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 the third one I think that's worth mentioning is some of the ulama, they say when it comes to ahadith al-tarheeb, when it comes to the ahadith that have to do with, that are stern and that are very, very harsh at the surface level, you as a sheikh, as an imam, it is not ideal, nor is it of wisdom for you to go into clarifying this hadith because you don't, you don't want that to do its opposite or have its opposite effect. That when you're talking about a certain hadith, for example, a person who um, commits suicide, right? The hadith says, okay? That this person will be in, in a perpetual state in, in hell, literally, right? You, when you say this hadith, you don't want to clarify to the people, well, no, the ulama said this, and they said that, and وَهَذَا You don't want to do that. What you do want to do instead is to allow that hadith to do its work. Because you want people, you, you want to create that, that, that shock effect, that when people are hearing this hadith, it shocks them. Like, whew. You don't want to mitigate that effect. The problem when you start, well, no, the ulama said, no, no. Right? They say, let the hadith al-tarheeb, let it do its work. Let it, let, it play, let, it, let it play its course. Now, if someone comes to you and says, Shaykh, how do we harmonize between this hadith and this text? Then that becomes a separate discussion. But out in the open, you want to you allow certain things to be as they are. Unless, unless people are specifically asking for clarification. Right? Mm. Um, the, the other thing, too, I think, when we're talking about al-kitman, when we're talking about um, concealing, Concealing from knowledge. What I, what people, it's very, it's perplexing. It's always been perplexing to me. This whole concept of, well, we're just going to be selective and we're going to keep this knowledge, right? And we're not going to tell people about it because we're afraid they might not come back to the masjid again. Why is it that we feel the world revolves around that one person that might? Mm. This is, it's a might. It's, it's speculative. You, it's not definitive that if you talk about, for example, hijab, oh, the sister might not come back to the masjid. Mm. Okay, let me ask you this. First off, the ulama, they would call this an usul. This is mafsad mulga. This is not something that you would seriously consider because you can apply this to any aspect of the religion. Oh, don't talk about usury. Because those who have mortgages might not come back to the masjid. Oh, don't talk about halal zabiha because those who believe in halal, they might not come back. Where do, where do you draw the line? But here's the... Here's and, the and that actually defies human nature. Coming, going into a professional college like myself, all these professional colleges, they tell you how tough it's going to be and how disciplined you need to be in those colleges and how you can't take anything for granted, how you have to be professional in and out of the college. You can get kicked out if outside the college, if you're... You know, mm -hmm. if you get a criminal record, then you're not. And people are submissive. They're yes, sir. And right? mm -hmm. the the lineup to get in the thousands of applicants to try to get into these colleges doesn't stop. That doesn't deter anybody from doing that. So that actually defies actual human behavior because human behavior. If you have something that is valuable that you said that is important, 
then you have to follow the rules and what it dictates, what the expectations are. And, and as you said earlier, did you notice the difference between the masjid? Did you, this is why you get the sentiment of some Muslims making you feel as though they're doing you a favor when they come to the masjid. Yeah. Do you know where this comes from? Yeah. Because we're giving them the impression that we need them. Yeah. We don't need you. Yeah. We don't want to, and I know this sounds a little bit harsh, yeah. but Muslims need to embody the, the, the obvious fact that you need Allah. Yeah. The masjid does not need you to yeah. survive. Yeah. This doesn't mean that we're going to push you away from the masjid. But there's this growing sentiment that, when, well, at least I wear hijab. You, when you wear hijab, you wear it for yourself. Mm. When you come to the masjid, you're, you're doing it for yourself. If you do good, it's for yourself. Mm. But this is, did you notice also, though? Surah Hujrat, like don't think that you're Islam. You're doing a favor. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, but Allah bestows his favor upon you because he guided you to Islam. Yeah. Right? So, but before I do uh, forget, why is it that we're so overboard concerned with the sister who might not come back to the masjid, but we're not solidifying the sister's who are already there to the, at the masjid. What happens to that sister who comes to you at the end of the khutbah and says, Sheikh, may Allah reward you immensely. I've been going to masajid and conventions for the past 15, 20 years. This is the first time I hear an imam on this pulpit mention the conditions of hijab. And this is the first time I feel strengthened by someone me being out there in my jilbab, in my hijab, it's not easy. Mm. Thank you for giving me that strength that I've mm. needed all along. What happens to her testimony? Mm. Why is it that these sisters, are we to assume that they have hearts of steel? Mm. Are we to assume that they are not to be reinforced? Do you see this one-sided, oh, we have to focus on that sister, right? Because she might not, well, are you not afraid of maybe losing some sisters who are already in the door? And they already get a lot of pressure from other sisters. I, I, I recall. So they need more reinforcement, yeah, I right? I recall, um, uh, a, a, you know, a, a sister who didn't, basically, to be frank, she didn't wear hijab properly. Me like and, she, yeah. and, and she was attacking niqabis. And she was saying that, oh, the, the so-and-so uh, sheikh also, like, she's kind of utilizing a lot of the rhetoric that many famous uh, speakers or whomever, mm. YouTube personalities, sure. things that they have said, they said, oh, this is not mandatory, this is not from our deen, and they're doing this. It's like, everyone's already attacking these naqabis. They don't need you to attack them as well. You, you, you know? And so you're absolutely correct that, you know, the sister is trying to wear hijab properly with the jilbab and everything. The ones that are trying to do that properly, they actually get internal pressure, like from other sisters saying, didn't you hear what the imam said? You know, this is not important. Didn't you hear what, you know, so-and-so said that this is not part of our deen? And then they feel like, hey, am I doing something that's wrong? And, 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 and let me tell you this. We as human beings, I mean, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in the Quran? Mm. Remind for verily, the, and I think all of us know this. Mm. The ayah, for verily remind, for indeed the reminder benefits the believer. Mm. When, I, when I look at this, this, this huge imbalance, right, the selectivity, that sister needs reinforcement. She needs to be reminded that what she's doing is correct. And we are here to encourage you, right? We are here to make sure that you stay on the right path. And we want to let you know that you, we are honored. The Muslim Ummah is honored to have women like you because what you're doing is not easy to do, mm. right? But who's doing this? We have to kind of zoom out 
and stop acting as though the world revolves around this one sister who might not come back to the masjid because we told her that when you come to the masjid, we have to dress appropriately. Mm. The world does not revolve around her. It doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around you, right? Mm. We have to stop this whole, there's something exceptionally unique about me, right? It's, it, it, we have to be fair in, in, in our approach. Now. So what do we do? How do we rectify the condition we have amongst our du'at and I'm, uh, to give them that sense of responsibility that they should have so they can help our communities through these times of fitan? Well, I'm going to propose something, but, but it's, I don't want to say it's not realistic, but I, I guess maybe to do the best, to do the best you can do. And that is that when you have so many links and so many ties and so many alliances, that is literally going to censor you and you're going to justify to yourself why you're censoring is the ideal way to go. Why you're con con consistent and perpetual censoring is of wisdom. It's not out of fear. Your nafs is going to beautify to you that the reason why you didn't speak about this is not because you're fearful. It's not because you're afraid of losing followers. It's not because you're afraid of being canceled. It's not because you're afraid of not being invited to next year's event. No, 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 no. You're doing this because of wisdom. You're doing this because you've got it all figured out. Right? And that's why, Akhi, I'm always reminded of the verse in Surah At-Tawbah where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, قُلْ إِنْ كَانَ آبَاؤُكُمْ وَأَبْنَاؤُكُمْ وَأَزْوَاجُكُمْ وَعَشِرَتُكُمْ وَأَمْوَالٌ اقْتَرَفْتُمُوهَا وَتِجَارَةٌ تَخْشَوْنَ كَسَادَهَا To the end of the verses, say if your fathers and your آبَاؤُكُمْ وَأَبْنَاؤُكُمْ and your sons and your wives and your family. In other words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is given a list of items of things that are very near and dear to your heart. Say, if these are more beloved to you than Allah and His Messenger, then wait. Wait for a calamity. Right? You can literally take out the word father, you can take out the word family, and you can substitute these words with alliances, right? Donations, right? Organizations, right? events, right? You, uh, uh, boards, you can literally substitute all of these in the Quran with things that we have. So for example, you might have alliances with feminist organizations. You know very well that you're not going to do anything or to say anything, although you know it's required and people are expecting for you to speak up. Your nafs is going to beautify for you why it's not ideal for you to speak up, but the reason why you're not is because you know that's going to press some buttons. That is going to anger your feminist alliances or whatever other alliance that you have. This organization, you know they are a pro-feminist organization. These, this MSA, whatever it is. So that's why even when it comes to money, this is why my nasiha that I give, and again, as I mentioned earlier, it might not be realistic, but to do the best of your ability. When your finances, when your livelihood is tied to the dawah, that is going to keep you from saying a lot that you need to speak about. Because mm. your tongue is tied. Your livelihood is coming from there. right? Imagine this. Imagine you have a company that's on the NASDAQ exchange, right? And they have all these investors. Let's assume you, as an imam, as a sheikh, you have, you, you have money invested in that company. But you know that that company probably has some foul dealings, right? It's accused of foul play somewhere, somehow. It is going to be very, very difficult for you to speak against that company because your own interest and your own investment is in that company. Dawah is no different. 
So that's why if a nasiha, a piece of advice to any da'i coming up, try to keep your livelihood separate from your da'wah. By all costs, do your best to have it that way. That is more pure for your heart and more pure for your uh, intentions. Do you, do you see this um, as uh, as a big obstacle right now for people to get over the 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 money that's involved in dawa? Do you think that's a big issue right now in the dawa scene? Of course, I I, I genuinely believe that because mm. there is a lot of money to be made in dawa. Mm. Um, I, I can't go into the details, mm. um, but I hear about these crazy costs that people are charging. Average Muslims, they're not these crazy, super duper mufti, alim, grand sheikh of the continent. Mm. These are your average Muslims, but because they have clout, they have followers, right? Mm. They can ask for these amounts. And, and again, I, I don't want to give out such figures simply because I was told to keep it between me, myself, and I. Um, I don't know if I've even gotten too far with this or not, but mm. there's a lot of money to be made. Yeah. But the problem with that, that becomes a kind of suht. Because mm. Bani Israel was accused of this as well. Bani Israel mm. was accused of this as well, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us many times in the Quran, Say, O people of the book, why are you mixing truth with falsehood? Knowingly. In, in Surah Al-Baqarah, at the very outset, the first three pages, it's, it's not out of vanity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about this. He says, Do not mix truth with batil and conceal the truth knowingly. Mm. Right? Especially if, if, if you eat from this and it's your livelihood, but you're, you're perpetuating a certain narrative, that becomes scary. I honestly am afraid of meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knowing that, and Allah knows. You can convince yourself all day that it's of wisdom. You can convince yourself all day that uh, 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 it's, it's of a maslaha. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows in the inner recesses of your heart, it wasn't that. Mm. It's because you are afraid of losing an invitation, being canceled, a contract, whatever, whatever it is. And no one can deny this. I'm not going to mention names and I'm not going to point fingers because it won't be fair for me to do that. But to say that this is not happening is ludicrous. It is happening. Mm. Yeah. What's the final advice do you have for us of scholars that we should avoid and scholars we should take from? Mm. If, you find, if you find a scholar who's constantly perpetuating the mainstream narrative, be aware of him or be aware of her. Of her. Uh, someone who you find who's not unique, who's not original, and someone who feels as though they have to twist each and every ayah or hadith to fit modern day norms, be that's the person who you, sh you really have to be aware of. So when a person comes to you and says, oh, the real meaning of hijab, it's probably a good idea that you shouldn't even give that person the, the time or date. Mm. Because... I mean, when people speak like this, I mean, have you unearthed certain scriptures that we were not aware of in the past? Did you find something in the middle of the sub-Saharan desert, some scrolls that finally gave us the, oh, we've gotten the idea of hijab all wrong. We finally know what it is. Allahu Akbar. Right? I mean, when you have someone who comes to you with these gharaib, right? The, 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 the real meaning of how, you know, how to treat a, 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 a wife Who's, 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 who's not respecting, obeying, or honor her husband. Oh, the real meaning is, 
we've we've got 14 centuries of consecutive 14 consecutive centuries of scholarship you're honestly telling me that they had it all wrong they were all biased they were all prejudiced and you finally now you got this undiluted unfiltered raw truth right this these are the things you have to be aware of and, and another thing too when you find someone who sounds more like a life coach mm. There's a lot of people with that title these days, life coach. No, no. What I mean by that, he's he's he, yeah. he's a sheikh. Like he, yeah. he's a sheikh. He's he studied traditionally. Yeah. But when you look at his content, it's never about halal and haram. Mm. Be aware of that person. Be aware of the person who, who, when you read their content, it's always the basic generic. Don't let nobody judge your past. Don't let nobody tell you. Get up, stand tall and firm. I mean, when you find this over and over and over and over again, it becomes nauseating. Sheikh, I want you to tell me about what is halal and what is haram. Because what is haram, if I'm doing it, then I'm going to refrain and stop and perhaps do the best to stop you know, doing it. And tell me what's halal, what I have to be doing so I can do it and inshallah ta'ala get closer to Allah's uh, 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 pleasure. But when you're talking just always in the generic, do you, don't let people judge you for your past. I mean, this is all fluffy, general. Anybody can do this. But you as a person who studied traditional Islamic knowledge, we're expecting more from you. We're expecting for you to, since you're living with us, is for you to talk about real life issues. Right, that are bothering the young Muslim men, that are bothering the young Muslim women. And talk more to us about the halal and the haram. Mm. Right? We don't need more Tony Robbins out there. We have enough Tony Robbins out there. We need Muslims who are going to, even even if it's mm. unpopular, right? Mm. Say the truth, even if it's bitter. Mm. Yeah. Now. Appreciate the time. And uh, I hope uh, during the course of the next week or so, we can have uh, a few more unscripted conversations. Inshallah. Uh, inshallah ta'ala. And uh, we benefited from your presence and your wisdom. And uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless our ummah with strong Ameen. Ameen. Uh, leaders and du'at and scholars that uh, we can bind together as a jama'ah and bring Ameen. victory again to this ummah. Uh, to all our listeners out there, uh, inshallah, we are going to continue topics like this. And remember, uh, this is our philosophy here at LifeHaq. We live by the haq, we die by the haq. And just when you think life is stuck, tune in to life hack. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.